Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so happy to be back here with you for another episode of The Chef Educator. I have been neglecting my research, the time I dedicate here to this podcast, for many reasons, but mainly just busy, busy, busy like all of you, I am sure. My newest podcast, called Kitchen Lingo, is now off the ground and up and running with some very favorable early feedback. And if you have not checked it out, I hope you do soon. One of the main reasons I made the podcast is because of you, the culinary educator. It is a free resource that I wish I had when I was teaching all the time. It is offered in both audio format and visual formats and can be used as a quick, you know, fun type of quiz right in your classroom. Each episode features a culinary vocabulary word and pauses for five seconds so listeners can provide or guess what the word actually means before the definition is then provided. And I know many culinary and hospitality teachers have reached out and they're using it in their classrooms and labs, especially when they have a few extra minutes to kill at the end of class. And even some of them say they're starting their classes. You know, it's a great way to get the class started and get them thinking and get them all kind of focused, you know, and while they're waiting for maybe other people to show up. So it's a great bell ringer or exit ticket type of activity. And you can access the audio episodes through your favorite podcast app, while the visual format I upload to our YouTube channel. So just search for Kitchen Lingo on either one of the platforms and it should come right up. A maybe easier way though is to just go to our main website at foodmedianetwork.com where you can find up there on the top a Kitchen Lingo tab. When you click on it, it opens up. It has both the audio and visual formats available, you know, links to the YouTube and all the different channels that you'd have. So and you can download those if you want to put them on like your desktop or your learning management system and then just play it when you have a few extra minutes in class. I try to keep each of the episodes under two minutes. So they're really quick, but it's a great way to teach culinary lingo, culinary vocab uh, to the students, whether that be culinary, baking and pastry, hospitality, and anything that's in our business, they'll be working in hospitality. Okay, with that said, let's jump right into today's chef educator topic, which I have titled for this particular episode, Becoming an Effective Teacher. And some of the information I want to share with you is based on some of the writings and the research papers by Dr. Andrew Johnson, who's a distinguished faculty scholar and professor of literacy at Minnesota State University. I mean, Google him, he's a prolific writer. And the knowledge he has and that he shares through his research is super valuable to the classroom teacher. And he's also got a few books out that you might want to check out. Two that I recommend are, well, first one's Teaching Strategies for All Teachers, Enhancing the Most Significant Variable. This book is designed to be a professional development tool for both pre-service and practicing teachers, and it provides descriptions and explanations and examples of a variety of research-based teaching strategies that enhance one's ability to teach effectively. His other book is called Essential Learning Theories, Applications to Authentic Teaching Situations. 
And this is a research-based theories which provide the basis for good decision-making and education. And he also says that teacher effectiveness and student learning are enhanced when research-based theories are used to design curriculum and daily lessons. And this book that he wrote examines human learning in the context of four types of research-based learning theories. And they are neurological learning theories, behavioral learning theories, cognitive learning theories, and transformative learning theories. So again, it's, you know, it's a book for all different types of teachers. And he actually has a new book that's coming out in the next month or so, I just saw, which is called The Human Dimension in Education, Essential Learning Theories and Their Impact on Teaching and Learning. It's an educational psychology book that focuses on human development, the human being, teaching and learning. So that's another one to good. And and, uh, I'll put links to all these books in the show notes uh, in case you want to get more information on them, you want to check those out. Okay, so as I've said many times on this podcast, teaching is a science, an art, and a craft. It is a science in that there are strategies and practices that a body of research has shown to be effective in enhancing learning. I mean, just like doctors and other professionals, us teachers should use research to inform our practice. Teaching is also a science in that teachers, on an individual level, are constantly collecting data by observing their students in order to see if the learning is taking place and to figure out how these current students learn best. And like scientists, us teachers are always experimenting with new techniques and strategies to see how they work with our students in our classes and our courses. It's also an art because that as teachers, we must bring ourselves fully into our teaching. As a teacher, each of us needs to find the methods and strategies that work best for us. I mean, teachers are not standardized products. What works for one teacher may not work for another. Thus, all the teaching strategies that you learn should be adopted and adapted to fit your particular teaching situation and your personal teaching style. I mean, to be an effective teacher, you must carve out your own teaching philosophy and discover your own unique talents and then learn how to use those talents. And third, teaching might also be described as a craft because a craft is a skill or a set of skills that's learned through experience. And this is exactly what teaching is. It means, you know, that no one can expect to enter into their first teaching job as a finished product, a finished teaching product, a complete product, an an effective teacher, in other words, because teaching is a complex, multidimensional endeavor, not something that can be just mastered in a year or two. Effective teachers develop over time through experience and continued study and with reflection. That's how we grow. And we've all been there at one point and we're all still growing as teachers in our own, you know, path, our own career. Now, the importance of knowledge needs to be addressed as well, because a body of knowledge is an essential component of being and becoming an expert in any domain. So to become an effective teacher, there are two necessary elements, developing knowledge and engaging in reflective analysis. Now, regarding the knowledge part, there are four kinds of knowledge generally agreed upon that are necessary for teaching expertise. And these are pedagogical knowledge, pedagogical content knowledge, content knowledge on its own, and knowledge of learners and learning. So let's talk about these. 
The first is pedagogical or pedagogical um, knowledge. So pedagogy, or pedagogy, depending on how you want to pronounce it, I pronounce it pedagogy. So pedagogy is the art and science of teaching. Therefore, this is a knowledge of general teaching strategies that are used to impart information, to teach skills, or enhance learning in all subject areas. So this includes strategies such as cooperative learning, um, problem-based learning, universal design, and various other forms of instruction. Expert teachers have a toolbox filled with an assortment of these strategies that can be used with a variety of students in a variety of situations. And in my book, The Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, I dedicated numerous chapters to the topic of pedagogy because it is so important. Now, I usually always refer to my book, and if you haven't heard about it, it's published by Kendall Hunt. And if interested, I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes. Now, the second type of knowledge needed is pedagogical content knowledge, which is an understanding of how to teach specific content or skills. For example, expert teachers know the best strategies for teaching reading, science, math, writing, or other content areas. This also means you understand how to convert your knowledge into information that students can understand. In other words, you're able to break things down into manageable parts. You use a common language to make things clear and simple, and you design activities that helps students understand. Now, the third is content knowledge, which is a body of knowledge related to the subject matter that is to be taught. Like we should all know how to cook or bake or front of the house or hospitality or accounting. Expert teachers have subject area expertise. The math teacher knows a lot about math, right? The culinary educator knows about food and cooking. The nutrition teacher knows a lot about nutrition. I mean, that's the content knowledge. This body of knowledge guides the expert teacher in deciding what is taught and in what order. And lastly, out of the four, you have to have knowledge of learners and learning. This is a knowledge of the learning process, you know, learning theories, uh, human development as it relates to social, emotional, intellectual, moral, and personal development. Expert teachers know about their students and how these specific students learn best. In other words, you understand the learning process, you know how your students learn best, and you recognize the link between what you do and student learning. Here, you also understand how human beings learn. And in a few of my past episodes of this podcast, I talked a lot about how the brain works, how learning works, and all this was based on neuroscience. And I did this in order to increase our understanding of this type of knowledge, the knowledge of learners and learning, how people learn. And if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I highly recommend them. Now, being and becoming an effective teacher, an expert teacher, requires also that we reflect. We, we need reflection. Reflection occurs during the teaching episode, which is what I call formative reflection, but it also occurs after the teaching episode in what is called summative reflection. And the research shows that reflective thinking occurs on four levels, which I want to talk about. So level one is teaching effectiveness. So effective teachers reflect to assess learning outcomes. They examine their teaching in order to identify those things that worked well and those things that could have been done differently. So the following types of questions 
could be asked when thinking about a specific class that you just taught. So how did it go? Uh, Was I effective in getting ideas across? Did learning take place? Were students able to take away something of importance? Were students able to construct new knowledge? Um, Is there anything I could change or do better? What worked? Did students learn? Did I achieve my purpose? What could I have done differently to make the lesson better or more interesting? Was I successful in differentiating the lesson? So these are all things about your teaching effectiveness. And, And as I've shared before, I put this right in my lesson plan. So right at the end of my lesson plans that I have, I have this kind of reflective, uh, my teaching effective, like what worked, what didn't work. So I write my notes right away, sometimes right during class, which would be formative while it's happening, that video didn't work, or, oh, I need more time for this activity. But at the end, too, I might take some time and say, wow, that didn't really work, I should do this, because, you know, again, we're always changing, we're dynamic, we're teachers. So I put that down, and it helps me, because then I can make the changes the next time I do the class. Because we all do it. We, we make these changes in our minds. We say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that next time. And then we forget. We get busy. And the next time we teach this course again, which may be you know, the next semester, the next year, the next term, whatever, then we go, ah, I was supposed to change that. I didn't. And now we're just doing it over and over again. So I find that to be effective. Now, level two is research or research-based practices or research-based theories. So decisions made by accomplished teachers are grounded in these established theories and research-based practices. And good teachers, effective teachers, reflective teachers pause periodically to examine their teaching practice to see if what they are doing aligns with a body of research and research-based theory related to teaching and learning. They ask questions such as, does this align with research-based theory? Can it be supported by one of the learning theories? Does it reflect best practices? Can I find research or research-based theory to support what I am doing? What does the professional literature say about this practice? It is hard at this level to reflect, though, if you have nothing upon which to reflect. Thus, this is the importance of having a sufficient baseline or a certain amount of knowledge of current research. This is important. So with that being said, we all need to be scholars. And something I'm going to talk about a little bit more in this episode, but we need to know the research and then we can compare it to the research. So this is also justifies, right? Or helps us defend what we're doing in the classroom. If we're ever called in, like, why are you doing this? You know, we could say, this is what the research says, and I'm trying something new with my students. Level three is values and philosophy. So teaching at the highest level requires teachers to pause to consider if what they are doing is in harmony with their personal and professional values and their philosophy. Teacher reflection at this level is based on the premise that you first have identified a set of values and you have a teaching philosophy. As you know, a philosophy is basically a set of principles based on one's values and beliefs that are used to guide one's behavior. And in a previous episode of this podcast, I talked all about how to create a teaching philosophy. And I even provided a step-by-step handout on how you can create your own. So please check that out if you need to. If you don't know about a teaching philosophy, you don't have one, or maybe you have an old one and it should be updated, you know, check out that episode and I kind of go through some steps and how you can write your own teaching philosophy. So once you have this teaching philosophy, at this level, we need to reflect on our teaching and make sure it's matching our philosophy. 
So questions here that you can include is, does this practice what I'm doing reflect what I value? Am I practicing what I preach regarding what I believe to be the purpose of education? And is what I am doing consistent with my teaching philosophy? Is this the type of teacher I am or that I want to be? And do I value what I'm doing? Now, the last one, level four, this is kind of deep. This is interpersonal and transpersonal connections. This Fourth level tends to be somewhat esoteric and may not be appropriate for all teachers. And reflection at this level, as described by the research of Johnson, is often tied in with one's metaphysical paradigm. So here you seek meaning as well as a larger purpose for what you do in your daily lessons. So in questions in this level, maybe like something like, what does this experience mean? Where does it bring you? How are you connecting with something beyond yourself? What is the lesson beyond the lesson? What is the larger human dimension? What is the emotional, the intuitive impact? You know, who are you? What are you learning? This type of thing. Now, much of the research shows, which we already know because we live and breathe it daily, is that teachers are the most significant variable in determining the quality of education. Therefore, one of the most effective ways to improve education is to attract the right people to this profession, right? Attract intelligent, creative, innovative, caring, dedicated, hardworking people into this field who have what is often described as a teaching disposition. In other words, besides knowledge that we just talked about and skills, Effective teachers are also said to have a certain set of dispositions. Now, a disposition is a state of mind that creates an inclination to think or act in a certain way. And while we cannot observe a disposition, we can observe actions that seem to reflect certain dispositions. Now, some teacher preparation programs at the college and university level seek to identify and even mandate certain dispositions that effective teachers must have. There are also efforts by some scholars to measure specific dispositions in order to determine who is and who is not an effective teacher. Of course, schools, colleges, and universities for a long time have attempted to hire professional educators with what they believe is the right attitude. Well, Whatever we think about it, right or wrong, these entities are basically saying that there are certain states of minds or dispositions that teachers must have. Now, what they think is the right attitude might differ from what you and I think is the right attitude. And that's because what one considers important as a teacher disposition is highly influenced by one's personal teaching philosophy, one's values, and a person's worldview. Now, with all that said, nevertheless, the dispositions I am about to talk about are those that many believe to be important for effective teachers. However, as mentioned, yours may be slightly different since they need to be aligned with your teaching philosophy, your values, and your belief system. So they may be a little bit different, but this is the generally accepted you know, rule of thumb for dispositions for teachers. So let me go through these and then we can talk about them. An effective teacher has compassion. 
they seek to empathize and seek to understand and to display unconditional positive regard for students and faculty and to try to understand the motivations and environmental circumstances of students, parents, and faculty. An effective teacher has kindness, seeks to interact with students and faculty in a positive, benevolent manner, to be friendly, to seek the highest good of others and to nurture self, others, and the environment. They have has courage by seeking to stand up for the rights of students, self, faculty, school, and the academic integrity of programs. They have the right effort. In other words, someone who strives to engage and apply oneself in the act of knowing, planning, teaching, and reflection. And as just mentioned, uh, effective teacher or disposition they would look for would be someone that has reflection seeks to think about one's actions as a teacher and a person for the intention of personal and professional growth. They define a philosophy and they act based on that philosophy. And this is big. I mean, as many of you know, when you go for a job interview, they often ask you, what is your teaching philosophy? Or in the university level, you go up for promotion. What is your teaching philosophy? So that's why I put out that past episode on that. But that is what a good teacher, an effective teacher has. They have a philosophy. They've thought about it, right? They also have honesty and integrity and seek to speak the truth and to act in the best interests of students, parents, faculty in the school or environment, has professional respect. They seek to celebrate differences of opinion and philosophies and to communicate and compromise to find common goals and to seek the common good. The last one they often talk about is they have a positive attitude. By seeking to think and speak in a manner that affirms and nurtures self and students and faculty. So, which of these dispositions are the correct ones? Well, to me, it is the ones that have the potential to bring you and your students to a higher place and that are aligned with your core values, your teaching philosophy, and your belief system. Again, teachers are not standardized products, and society needs to stop treating them as such. No two people are alike. Individuals have different character traits, learned behaviors, and that goes for us teachers as well. However... With that said, an instructor's character traits and behaviors can influence the performance of learners. We all know this. For example, an instructor's character traits can determine the way that instructor is perceived by the students, by the learners. So our character traits, you know, they're grumpy, they're mean, they're, they're uh, sarcastic, all these traits that we may have that aren't, is not going to be beneficial in the classroom. So now a positive attitude is mentioned as a disposition sought in effective teachers. So let's talk about attitude. Attitudes, which are often demonstrated through behavior, typically result from life experiences and interactions with others. By the time a person reaches adulthood, changes in attitude are difficult to achieve. Specific attitudes can impact instructional effectiveness, especially the instructor's attitudes towards learners and the learning process. We've all had no teachers with a negative attitude or a bad attitude, right? And instructors' behaviors and comments often reveal either a positive or negative attitude, just as it does with our students. Instructors with positive attitudes are generally more effective than those with negative ones. Instructors with a positive attitude toward teaching send a reinforcing message to learners. They have encouragement and positive expectations, right? That's that positive attitude. And those are factors that enhance the learning process. Effective instructors behave in ways that make the students, the learners, want to learn and to develop, you know, that self-fulfilling prophecy. The students think, you know, I believe I can because you, the teacher, believe I can. 
you know, that I keep trying until I did it because you, the teacher, convinced me that I could, you know. So we're there to motivate and we're there to provide that positive attitude. On the other hand, instructors who do not enjoy their jobs or the schools or the institutions in which they work frequently project a negative attitude. We've all worked with these people, right? Their attitudes have a significant impact on the learning environment, a negative one at that. And this affects both the learning and the attitudes of the students, right? Then they get cranky. So the role of an instructor demands involvement with learners. So it's hypocritical for instructors to say they enjoy teaching if they're unwilling to assist students in the learning and development process, right? And instructors who use their position to gain attention or impress their students, you know, they, they've got some insecurities, right? And it's going to interfere with that instructional effectiveness, right? They're trying to make it all about them. They're up on stage, right? That's kind of that strong attitude. So here's a bullet point list of negative and positive instructor behaviors. We just talked about these, but this is a different list. So and then we'll take a look at those. So someone that generally has a negative behavior uses aggressive behavior, speaks in a commanding tone of voice, frowns constantly, displays an inflexible attitude, brags or threatens that, you know, no one's going to get an A in this class or, you know, you're going to work hard. Uh, They state the extraordinary effort will be required to pass this course. Oh, you're going to have to work. You better give up your social life. They refuse to repeat instructions or questions. I can't stand these type of teachers, right? Students ask a question. They didn't hear it. Maybe they weren't listening. They were goofing off. But so what? Tell it as many times as we need to. But they're the ones that refuse it. No, I said it once. You didn't get it. Get it from someone else. They act as though learners must be driven rather than led. And they show little consideration for colleagues and other learners and other students. We know those people. Now, positives... They're being considerate to the learners. They're being cooperative with colleagues and the learners. They offer compliments. They exhibit friendliness. And they're involved in the institution, right, activities and then the student activities, right? We know these people too, right? We like being around them. So those are kind of the list there. And you can get, paints a picture for us, gives us a vision. Now, in addition, if individuals wishing to teach must have above average cognitive abilities, right? Various terms such as intelligences, cognition, and perception are used to describe the mental abilities essential for an effective instructor, right? an effective teacher. In conjunction with the ability to speak clearly and distinctly, instructors must possess the intellectual abilities necessary for effective oral communication. In addition, an instructor must read, write, reason, synthesize, solve problems, compute, formulate, express ideas, make decisions, right? all at a pretty reasonably high level of competency. Now, while current research and theory contend that creativity is a part of intellectual functioning, it deserves some separate attention as it relates to the role of a teacher or instructor. Think about the creative teachers that you know. Maybe you're one of them. Because creativity is one of the qualities that tend to distinguish outstanding instructors from the average ones because creativity produces ideas, strategies, and approaches that get the job done, right? They're creative. They think outside the box. A creative instructor or teacher thinks of ways to describe or illustrate subject matter so it comes alive for the students, right? They're creative. On the other hand, poor instructors often use the same methods of presentation regardless of the topic. However, as we all know, 
the method that works well for one individual or one class or one lesson may not be satisfactory for another. Therefore, effective instructors are alert to the slightest signs of confusion or misunderstanding or lack of interest among our students. And instructors are able to adjust their presentations accordingly. You know, we have a lesson plan, but it's just a plan. It doesn't mean it's, you know, verbatim. If sometimes that's just not happening, so you just kind of toss it off to the side and go to plan B. We need to be able to, you know, be flexible like that. And that's where that creativity comes in. Like, what am I going to do now? We change it up. For example, a primary reason for varying instructional procedures with different classes or learners is that learners differ in abilities, in experiences, and learning styles. And the rapidity with which students acquire a particular subject depends to a large extent on their ability to adapt their learning styles to an instructor's teaching method. Well, this instructor-learner relationship should obviously work both ways. And us as instructors must modify instructional procedures to match the learning styles of the learners. Why do they have to do all the adapting? We can adapt too. Understanding the principles of learning allows a creative and resourceful instructor to design new instructional aids to illustrate principles, to use current events to emphasize concepts, or develop more effective methods of measuring the progress of each learner, right? To try new things. Now, although a clear understanding of an instructor's role is necessary to establish a professional relationship between the instructor and the student, This professional relationship must not be uncaring or disinterested. There's an important line there, we all know it, between a close friendship or social relationship and a professional relationship based on the mutual respect and concern for students engaged in the teacher learning process. As instructors, we must maintain positive relationships with learners that contribute to rather than distract from the primary goal of learning. But we want to keep it professional. While good interpersonal skills do not ensure learning, research evidence shows that a learner's acquisition of knowledge can be adversely affected if the learner has negative feelings regarding the instructor. I've mentioned this before in other episodes. If a learner is afraid or angry or worried, they will not learn effectively. I want to take a quick pause here at this halfway point in the show and ask, Are you currently in college or thinking about enrolling in college? Or maybe you're a parent, grandparent, or mentor of a high school or college-bound student. In either case, I want to share a super valuable free resource with you, and that is the nonprofit organization called Affordable College Prep. They are a free, nonprofit organization that offers remote college support services for students and families, which means that they can help you with your college essays, the application process, finding financial aid, and much, much more. And again, it's free. So what do you have to lose? Check them out today. Their website is www.affordablecollegeprep.com. That's all one word www.affordablecollegeprep.com. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at Affordable College Prep. Remember, you don't have to navigate the college admissions process by yourself. 
Affordable College Prep has been helping and educating students and their families on all things college for years, with an emphasis on saving money and doing what is necessary to get students to graduate in a timely manner. The Affordable College Prep advisors do an excellent job in helping students find and apply to the universities that provide the best fit academically, socially, and financially for them and their families. And they do this by providing remote support over the phone, as well as through video chat, email, and text messages to help you prepare for college. So be sure to take advantage of this free resource and contact them today. Okay, now back to the show. Negative feelings on the instructor's part are often shown towards the students through sarcasm, defensiveness, insults, hostility, aloofness, overreaction to learner behavior. And these negative instructor behaviors interfere with the development of good personal relationships with the students. Yes, we are human, but we're there on stage, we're doing our performance, you know, we have to have these things in check. Good interpersonal skills are important, not only in the learning environment, but also in all other areas of the educational enterprise. The ability to interact with students, administrators, parents, employers, and community leaders is vital. It is often said that educators are in the people development business. Effective instructors, effective teachers must be able to work in harmony with colleagues. So now let's talk about our behavior as teachers for a moment and the effect that can have on our students. Some of the ways that we present ourselves and are perceived by others arise naturally without any conscious intent, right? Nevertheless, much of our impact on learning as teachers, as instructors, is a result of behavior, both in word and deed. And having an awareness of our behaviors that they can have an adverse effect on learning is the first step towards alleviating such behaviors. Now, appropriate behavior depends upon time and circumstances and cannot be predetermined by someone else. Obviously, displaying instructor behavior that is consistent with one's feelings and value system is important, right? We don't want to be fake. We want to be genuine, right? And students can pick up on fake behavior pretty quick. We all know that. However, general principles of behavior, such as being both friendly and professional, are applicable and appropriate for most situations. Therefore, as instructors, we must consider the feelings of others. We cannot know how our students, the learners, may feel about many things. So we need to be cautious in situations that may be embarrassing. You know, throwing out opinionated statements about politics, racial or cultural differences, or the value of one school subject over another should be avoided. You know, you have any times if you heard, oh, you don't need the dining room class, or you don't need the beverage class, or you don't need a front of the house class, or you don't need the bake shop class from another instructor. That's not good. That's being an opinionated statement. And we have an effect on students negatively when we say those type of things, no matter what our thoughts are. Now, if you do have to talk about some controversial matter, they can be discussed, but only in a tactful and considerate manner. And us teachers should react to ideas or statements in a manner That is not demeaning to the student. Think first and talk second is good advice. And meaningful discussions are difficult if the instructor is perceived to be unreasonable or opinionated, right? The students are not going to (laughs) talk. They already know like, oh no, this person is, you know, difficult and they're going to yell at me. They're going to embarrass me. They're not going to talk. So if we really want to get a discussion going, um, we need to make sure that we are tactful and considerate. 
And when our students give an incorrect response, we should avoid demeaning them, of course. Whenever possible, as instructors, we should try to build on a portion of the incorrect response. For example, John, I believe you may be on the right track, but there are some problems with your response. See how we kind of package that? And then we could ask another student, hey, Mary, can you add to that? Or we could ask John, who put out that wrong answer, maybe to elaborate a bit more. Right, John, that's, that's okay. I hear what you're saying. Why do you believe that to be true? You know, we're trying to bring more out of them. Instead of just saying, uh, no, you're dead wrong. That's, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. So short responses like that, no, you're wrong, they're not appropriate responses. I mean, John, how could you possibly think like that? Mary, we just talked about this yesterday. Where the heck were you? Did you remember it? These type of responses obviously can embarrass the students. And sarcasm and ridicule have no place in teaching. They have a negative impact on learning and often result in undesirable behaviors when the student reacts back, right? And escalate. And as mentioned, being cooperative is another positive behavior because it is essential for instructors to cooperate with colleagues as they work together for the benefit of the students. Instructors should discuss responsibilities with the school administration to understand what is expected of them. Instructors should also be sensitive to the overall school program and keep their own teaching responsibilities in perspective. I mean, there's other activities at the school and in the lives of learners may be more important at times than your class, right? Or your particular course. You know, athletes, they always have to go early and go catch the bus. They go to, a, you know, a, a tournament or a game somewhere. They have to leave the class. We shouldn't be so much like, oh, how dare you leave our class? You know, we need to avoid being inflexible in these situations. Instructors who are cooperative develop a positive reputation, and they can expect a high degree of cooperation from others. And friendly is another positive behavior. The instructor who meets both students and the colleagues and staff with a smile, a word of greeting, finds it much easier to work with them. You know, a free, natural relationship should be maintained with fellow instructors as well as with students, right? You know, the age-old advice to new teachers is still relevant today, and that was be fair, be firm, and be friendly, because it's important for students to perceive their teachers as approachable and pleasant. And I would even add in, try and be complimentary as well when appropriate. I mean, compliments motivate people. Who doesn't like a compliment? Right? It motivates them to be more productive and provide greater feelings of satisfaction. I mean, just showing interest in a student or a colleague's accomplishment is a compliment in itself. Now, of course, when you're going to do compliments, they must be sincere. And if you do too many of them or on trivial matters, right, they're going to know that you're being fake. Now, being involved is another expected behavior trait. And I believe instructors should be involved in their school's programs and activities. You know, go to the games once in a while, join committees, uh, work the open houses. Interest in and attendance at school functions facilitates rapport with students and your colleagues. And participation is inappropriate. These social activities can help you, you know, get better acquainted with faculty members and administrators. And it makes them and you approachable to each other down the road, you know, in different situations come up where you maybe have to share a course, you have to be on a committee together. They do not need to have social contacts with your colleagues outside of work. However, you should interact with them professionally in order to develop, you know, informal relationships, friendly relationships while you're at work. And always be professional. 
Professional instructors take pride in their roles and they are highly ethical when dealing with others. They also take pride in using their skills to help their students become competent. As professional educators, instructors value education and reinforce all parts of the curriculum. For example, a culinary teacher must recognize and reinforce the value of correct English usage, good communication skills, and other elements of the overall school or degree program. Instructors should also dress professionally and have a clean, neat appearance. As teachers, we're in a position that we are observed closely, and poor grooming can have an adverse influence on our students and colleagues alike. I mean, our students and colleagues and fellow teachers, they gain their first impressions from general appearances, and those first impressions can be strong. And lastly, I want to talk about teaching and scholarship. In my opinion, there should be no conflict between teaching and scholarship in higher education. Teaching is informed and enhanced through scholarly efforts of the instructor. And the big joke is that the general public often believes that college teachers, we simply stand on stage while dispensing bits of wisdom to these you know, dutiful learners that sit passively in these huge auditoriums, listening to our every word. Well, while this scenario may happen somewhere, is relatively minor part of most instructors' roles, especially in culinary and baking and pastry lab classes. In fact, effective instructors realize that passive learners are not effective learners. As we all know, learning requires involvement and participation. So these big, large lecture halls are really, you know, except for the big, huge public universities, pretty much extinct. Now, going back to research and scholarship, research is inquiry through a variety of activities designed to expand the knowledge base of a discipline. And scholarship is a concept that refers to those activities that are intended to synthesize the most recent knowledge in a field and then organize it in a way that provides new insights and enhances the ability of faculty members to present information to learners. Now, scholarship may include research, but it is not limited to research. So given these distinctions, it's important for all college faculty to be scholars. I mean, they must be knowledgeable with the current developments in their disciplines and continually strive to find ways to help learners acquire knowledge. However, all faculty members need not be researchers. Relatively few institutions have the resources to support research faculty in ways that are necessary to make you know, significant contributions to the knowledge base of a discipline. And, and speaking about that, the reward structure in higher education has become skewed so that it overemphasizes research. I mean, tenure and promotion policies at the true research universities, which was where it should be, has somehow trickled down and been adopted by institutions that cannot claim distinction in research. And I've seen this in institutions that I've worked for. This overemphasis on research and publishing consequently creates an impractical desire on the part of some institutions to become research institutions, which they're not. They weren't designed for that. Some faculty members may emphasize research too. And there's always those, oh, we're research. No, we're not. And they end up, these ones that emphasize that they end up downgrading teaching and pedagogical scholarship and, and service as bad things, right? Because they put research up on some kind of pedestal. And as a consequence, there's a large amount of relatively meaningless research being published out there in obscure journals 
And in my opinion, too little attention given to excellence in teaching. I mean, really, isn't that what we should be celebrating for the most part? If you're not a research university, you're a teaching institution. You're celebrating teaching and student learning. Instead, it got twisted around, and now some faculty members, they no longer feel any pride in being you know, members or faculty at institutions that emphasize quality in undergraduate education. They think they need to be in a research university. And another consequence of this overemphasis on research is that it becomes particularly difficult to separate the notions of research and scholarship in institutions where research is a legitimate part of their mission. I mean, even in these institutions, you know, where their mission is the research university, right? Not all faculty members in all disciplines should strive to be full-time researchers. There's still teaching going on. I mean, only a few can be full-time researchers and rewarded for their excellence and their research endeavors. Many, perhaps most, will find it impossible to engage in major research efforts. To me, these individuals should pursue and be recognized for pursuing worthwhile scholarship related to their teaching and their service activities. A report from the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching suggests replacing the dichotomy between researchers and teachers with a modern view of scholarship that includes discovery, integration, application, and teaching as a better model for higher education. So in conclusion, an instructor's effectiveness is determined in large measure by subject matter competency, professional competency, and personal competency. Inadequacy in any one of these areas will have an adverse impact on learning. And a professional instructor's responsibility is to facilitate learning. In addition, all instructors are part of the educational institutions in which they function, which means they will be expected to adapt the culture of that institution. And today, instructors must also have an understanding of diverse learner populations and seek ways to better serve them. And as we all know, an instructor's role is a challenging one that demands a lifetime commitment to learning. However, there are rewards that justify the effort. Motivating our students, developing their skills, and seeing the pleasure that results from newfound competencies are rewards unique to teaching. Instructors can also enjoy exchanging ideas with fellow instructors and developing new ideas and interests, especially ones that we can bring back to our classrooms. That is truly what is going to make us an effective teacher. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. Till we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. The Chef Educator podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network. And we hope you enjoyed the show and this episode. Your feedback and comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. So please let us know what you think. You can email your comments to foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, all one word, foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, or even leave us a voicemail on our audience response hotline. That number is area code 207 835-1275. That's 207-835-1275. We would also appreciate if you'd share the podcast with everyone you know. And don't forget to buy us a coffee or two if you want to support the show and our efforts. Just go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach or through Patreon at www 
patreon.com slash drprofessorchef. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We truly appreciate any help and support you provide. Thank you in advance.